Today's sermon is about more than anything. It's that in seeing and being filled with the Spirit, and in Christianity we use this phrase, filled with the Spirit a lot, to mean many different things. Most of them miraculous, most of them strong, most of them feeling some sort of spiritual high. And yet in this instance here in the beginning of sort of this journey with the Spirit, Philip cries out, um, and what he has to offer the world in return is forgiveness as he is being being martyred, as, as he is being stoned to death. And so, so often, part of what today is about is, if last week was about the Father, today is more about sort of this, this reclamation of the Spirit and then trying to place the Spirit in the realm in which we relate to them, in a, in a, to the Spirit in a more full context. Um, to, to sort of set it in a larger frame. Um, these sermons, as I said last week, um, are more like theology. So we have sermons that are more like this summer when we go through the book of Job, where we'll just read. Uh, we won't read all of Job because it's a very long book, um, but we'll read and then we'll just um, hear how that word might speak to us today. Then there are sermons that are more like last summer, I think, was a better instance of biblical theology, this idea of of sort of taking a concept, the example I used last week is like justice, and then tracing it through all the different iterations of which it uses in scripture. Those two are very important sermons. We do those often. And then there's this third kind, which we don't do often, that I like. Nobody else. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Maybe somebody likes it. Uh, point being is that our more theology proper, in which we sort of take the witness of all that we have that God's spoken to us through his scripture, through his church, through the wisdom that's passed through ages, and then try to articulate what does that mean in its fullness. Um, not singular passages, not just trying to trace out one theme, but trying to look at this bigger picture of how God relates to us, to what we speak of God. Now, there's an interesting um, theological phrase um, there, that comes from the theologian Robert Jensen, who said, learning to be a Christian is learning to speak Christianese. Now, if you don't know Christianese, Christianese is a, uh, a phrase that we used to say all this church talk. Um, for instance, if you weren't a Christian and you came in and I started off with, what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? You'd say, that is a great example of Christianese, um, because you would have no idea of what we were talking about or this, that, and the other. But what Jensen, I think, correctly captures in saying learning to be a Christian is learning to speak Christianese, is to say that learning to be a Christian is learning to use language in a way that accurately represents reality as we live through it. Learning to be a Christian is learning to use language because it's the means by which we express ourselves and understand the world um, in a way to then understand it Christianly. So to become a Christian is to learn things like what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that Jesus died for you? What does it mean that we pray in the name of our Father who is in heaven? Now, there are other sides of Christianese. Um, I'm looking to you, Ray, because you went to Wheaton. What's the, define the relationship, DTR, <laughs> which is not a biblical uh, phrase, um, but often at Christian colleges or Christian campus spaces, there's a moment in any relationship between a man and a woman when they are sort of just kind of flirting where they have to sit down and have a DTR. They have to define the relationship. What are your intentions here? This is funny, <laughs> I think. That's an instance of Christianese, which I don't think Robert Jensen means. He doesn't mean we need to take these, these 
uh, secondary level things that we've overlaid on scripture and then make them understandable to people. Sorry to pick on you, Ray. Ray once told me he, he got DTR'd so many times because people were just so, in, he did not say. <laughs> That's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a compliment, Ray. Um, so he doesn't mean that. He means um, learning to speak in these ways. And so last week in particular, oh, this is, so this sermon series comes out of my reading of this book I talked about last week. This is volume one. Volume two is still at home. Um, it changed my life, and this is not to say this is a book report on this book, but it's the underpinnings at which I began to shift the way that I understand who we are as humans. So two weeks ago was sort of the bad news on how difficult it is to be a human today, to reclaim our attention, to be in the world. Um, and then last week we talked about the father. The, the joke that I used, and I'll put up today, is that when I go through this book, I feel a bit like, like this guy. Like if you just see... All these connections and this, um, uh, my conspiracy theory of how all this works and holds together and um, maybe it's too close to home. Um, uh, but when I go through this book, it's, even as you go through it, you bounce back and forth between sections and chapters. And, and it's like, I feel like when I get up to preach this, I'm trying to express, but I worry that I look like this, um, which is why I purposely did not wear any outfit that resembles that today. So that's, last week we went through the Father. There was one quote that I forgot to hit, which is on the back of the bulletin from last week, not this week, sorry. The glory of God is man or the human fully alive, and man is fully alive when he uh, beholds God. Humans are fully alive when they behold God. The first half of this quote is quite famous. Is, have people heard it before? The glory of God is the human being fully alive, the man fully alive, this, that, and the other. But the second half is that we are fully alive when we behold God. Going back to the first sermon, but more than that, I think the challenges of today, of becoming this glory, of becoming a fully life, is it's so hard for us to behold anything. All beholding is, is us drawing out comparisons to other moments, of looking at other times, of being interrupted by our phones, of being interrupted in so many different ways. The ability to have attention today, to take in and behold something. I mean, if you, you happen to go to an art museum, we shuffle by very quickly museum pieces that, that have been cherished for a long time. Or if you go to the national parks in Yellowstone, there's the Grand Prismatic Springs, the beautiful, colorful thing. And many, if not most of all the tourists, myself included, walk up, take a picture, and go to what's next. Our lives are hard to behold. And if it's hard to behold, it's hard to become fully alive. As everything just becomes one moment to the next, fastly shifting from thing to thing. And to actually pause, to take in, becomes quickly very difficult in our modern world. Um, very quickly, it, it becomes hard to give dignity to things in that way, to sit and to wait and to behold. Um, so part of this sermon series is an attempt to redefine what, is, what are we as the glory of God. How is it we become fully alive? And part of the reason why I think it's an important sermon series is because it's so hard to behold. 
Um, and the King James, behold, shows up a lot. Today, it's more look in our Bible translations. Look. Um, but we don't look well, and I think that's part of the problem. The title of the book, Eccentric, means that who we are is eccentric to us, outside of us. So often in the modern world, we're taught to find ourselves on the inside, to be authentic to ourselves, to, to question who we really are. And what this book and this sermon series is tempted to say is it's located outside of ourselves that we find who we are. That three-part way of finding who we are, as we talked about last week, is, is there's this three-formed way of talking God's identity by reference to three sets of stories about God. Stories about God as the source of all reality other than God. God is father of us all. Stories about God as the reconciler, reconciler of alienated humankind in Jesus Christ. And stories about God bringing us to consummation and eschatology in the Holy Spirit. We're doing the third one today. We did the first last week. Um, I've used this image several times, but so often we try to find one plot as we read the scripture. What is the one story of the Bible? And I think if we properly read the Bible, we can at least sort of find three different stories that are intertwined in how we read the Bible. The story of God's creation, of creating us, of giving us dignity in that creation. The story of God redeeming us. This, I said last week, is the predominant one we primarily only understand in North America. So often that if you um, pick up a book on what is the main theme of the Bible, it'll only be about redemption. Um, it'll only be about fall and then reconciliation. Like I tried to say last week, that is an important story. There's nothing in me that wants to deny the truth and goodness of that story only want to say it's not the only story, that God also wants to bring us to our full consummation, to our full being with God, residing with God, and um, the eradication of those things which disform us in the world. Death is still here. Um, and so we have these sort of three ways of reading the scriptures in that way. Last week, if you weren't here, and this will be the pattern we follow this week and next week, we talked about the Father, who relates to creation through the preposition, or relates to creation, creates creation. Um, uh, we talked about the, that the quotidian, David asked me about this before the service, if I didn't define it well enough, is to say that we're blessed in our individual particularity living in this way in this world. So if we only have the one story of redemption, we're only blessed as redeemed. What this was attempting to say is God has blessed us in our context, and if we look at wisdom literature, particularly Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in a different way, there's goodness in just being the creation of God. Um, we talked about that line from Calvin that this is the realm of glory that we reside in, the theater of glory. We exist by borrowed breath. Um, uh, we are not our own in that sense. We have borrowed our breath. We respond in faith. And the practices of responding in faith are delight, wonder, and perseverance. Today we have the Holy Spirit. And so we'll walk through each of these separately. Who relates to us circumambient or circumambiently. We'll define that as we get to it. Um, to bring us to eschatological consummation. Another one I'll define. These are nerdy words. I understand that. Um, uh, well, the, the parentheses words that relate to this today are election and mission. But what that means is that we are awaiting our fullness with God, that we exist on borrowed time. 
So last week we existed on borrowed breath. Today we exist on borrowed time. Um, then we respond in hope. And practicing joyous hopefulness, we have two different ways of doing that. Responding in the now of borrowed time and the not yet of borrowed time. Christianity in its um, wisdom has sort of said that there are two ways in which we exist after Jesus, in the now and the not yet. We'll talk about that when we get there. But because Christ has raised from the dead, we exist in the now of the resurrection of God and that God's bringing fullness to life in this time. And yet because Jesus is just the first fruits, in the words of Corinthians, the beginning of that, we exist in the not yet. Disease still happens, death still reigns, injustice comes in the world. There are other things. So we will talk about practices of responding in the now and talk about practices in responding uh, in the not yet. I felt like a lot already. Um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the church, this is completely unrelated to anything. The church that meets at night left the temperature at 80 degrees. I don't even know why it was 80 degrees in the first place, but it, does it feel really hot in here today to everyone? Okay. Um, so the kids, we're going to send up here. We're all going to the basement. Um, uh, sorry, I was just noticing how hot it feels. Um, so this week, in each one of these, so relates in different ways. Last week, we talked about how the Father relates to us one of the things that I said, which I continually need to remind myself, is all these are three parts. The Father relates in creation. Creation happens through the Son. That's what tells us at the beginning of the book of uh, John um, and Colossians, that Jesus is active in creation, and so is God's Spirit. And we even see that in the Genesis account. It is God's Spirit hovering over the water. So when I say Spirit and we're talking about consummation, we're talking about primary actor with the other two acting in part with. So if we think we're dividing the Trinity up into each unique role and there's no oneness, we found a new heresy, which is actually old heresy. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, we're trying to slow down um, this way of sort of seeing the divine. There's an ancient old Greek phrase for what the Trinity is, and it was a perikinesis, um, and it has this notion of dance connected with it. Um, so that these three parts are moving. Um, Eugene Peterson helpfully defined that as if you were to watch a, um, a square dance from above. Um, you would look as if it was one thing moving, but there are actually different parts moving. And so sometimes when we do theological look at the Trinity, we slow down the dance so we can see the individual parts. And if you speed it up, it all looks like one God. Um, and so there's this way in which when we're talking today about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a slowing down. The Spirit um, is classically called the third person of the Trinity in the Nicene Creed, the Lord and the giver of life. The Spirit we see in different scenes throughout the Old Testament but comes in a promised way much more in the New Testament. And the Spirit is the Spirit that's enacting in Jesus in the book of Romans, it's the spirit of him who raised him from the dead that is now residing within us. And so the spirit has this way in which we, um, as Christians, as we finish John's gospel, are being invited and blessed with this spirit as Christ is no longer with us, to be reminded of what Christ said and did, and to be brought into a future life. And so we have this way of sort of 
um, seeing the Spirit as this third person of those three that relates to us in a different way than the other two. Um, the introduction to the Spirit in the book of Acts, the one phrase I want to focus on here is that the, well, it's a funny phrase. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. Um, no, it is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all f- people, all flesh, in an older translation. That what happens with the Spirit is we begin to see God pouring out his flesh on all people. The phrase that will come up later is that phrase, in the last days. So often we disconnect the Spirit from this reminder of in the last days, in the fullness of time, in bringing us to the end. Um, We forget that the Spirit's primary role is in pointing us to that fulfillment of time when we will reside in communion with God well and reside in communion with each other well. The Spirit is the reminder of that time in which we are moving towards. Circumambient, which is one of my favorite phrases after I learned it, or circumambiently, um, uh, is this means being on all sides encompassing. Being on all sides encompassing. If you were to go and mark all, do a biblical theology of the Spirit throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, certainly, you'll find that the Spirit is sometimes inside the believer, is sometimes outside the believer, is sometimes active in bringing something about, is in sometimes uh, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness um, in the book of Mark. The Spirit seems to be more around us not just in us it's in us it's through us it's um sort of gathered around us and so the spirit's way of acting to towards humanity is in this circumambient way acting circumambiently to us um you however not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the spirit if indeed the spirit of god lives in you and if anyone does not uh, have the Spirit of God, then they do not belong in Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even your body is subject to death because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, who raised Christ from the dead, will also give you your mortal life because of the Spirit who lives in you. Very complex, this part of Romans 8 on the Spirit and what it's doing. The Spirit intercedes for us in the next passage through our wordless groans. So the Spirit just isn't in us, it intercedes for us. The Spirit's action is is pretty complex in all these sort of ways if we were to trace them out biblically. But it seems like circumambient is a good word to describe that. Eschatological consummation, no words needed there moving forward. Uh, eschatological is this um, last times, last things, last things. So if we talk about um, the second coming of Christ, we're talking about eschatology. If we talk about the advent of Christ returning to us, of of redeeming all things, of putting all things under his feet and his rule, or in the book of Ephesians when Paul says that all things will be summed up in Christ, we're talking about eschatology, the last time, the last things. The fulfillment of all things. So that's a big word to sort of say, um, second coming, final days. Um, uh, but it's the study of that, that this is the, the coming that we're awaiting as Christians. So with that comes consummation. We're waiting for that to be consummated with us, for us to fully reside with God.
In the book of Revelation, this is the day that every tear will be wiped away, and death shall be no more. This is what we're awaiting, and we are not yet in that place. My classic way of describing this is this image here. Um, there is the first timeline of humanity, the timeline on top. This is the timeline that everyone is on, that we exist, we are born, we live. And what that time is like is a time um, in which we are bound to slavery, to sin, and to death, if we were to put it one way, is that we live in this limited way. What happens in our in Christ first um, is a second timeline for humanity emerges. Now, it kind of is tracing there for Israel as well. They always have the hint of the second timeline, but it becomes actualized in the resurrection, which is that we now reside on a second timeline. We reside on this time of eternal life, of new creation, of freedom, of um, uh, moving towards our consummation with God. The struggle for Christians, and this is, I think, maybe the weirdest part about Christians that we don't claim enough, is that we live in the box. You are here. Um, Is that we live both between the timeline of, of the wilderness, the timeline of death, the timeline of trial, and we also live on the timeline seeing what Christ has done through us through our baptisms, of being reconciled and brought to new life. We exist as a people of the new life, the new way. And yet this puts Christians in a weird spot because we're both simultaneously moving towards something but also being stuck in the old thing at the same time. Now Romans will say, of course, that nothing can separate us from that second timeline, neither uh, angels nor heights nor depths. And it'll also say that through the Spirit, we are more than conquerors in that second timeline. And yet there isn't one amongst us, I don't think, who feels the pull of living in the box. It's not fully yet for us to live on the second time line. Election and mission are the side notes for today. Because we exist in that spot where we're aware of which hum- this world is still bound by death and slavery to sin and disruption, and also on that second timeline of reconciliation, of life, of eternity, we are drawn into the struggle through election. Um, first, we often think of election, um, Chris read the passage from uh, Ephesians for us, as this blessing. We are blessed to be elect, and we have eternal life from that. One of the things that Kelsey, I think, correctly pulls out is that as we've received God's yes, we are also the first recipients of God's no. We, too, know that that timeline, that other one, comes to an end. We know that that within us, which is bound towards that thing, bound to death, that we're being rescued from by Jesus Christ, is also being rejected. This brings me to one of my favorite parts of eccentric existence. Um, A parable for living in this way on borrowed time in the wake of uh, catastrophe appears in the work of Diane Arbus. At one point, Arbus has an exhibit of portraits of physically abnormal people. They were unusually short, tall, heavy, or thin, capable of rare physical contortions. Many of them were employed in circus sideshows and as clowns. A frequently noted feature of the portraits was their subjects' extraordinarily unguarded presence. Neither ingrating nor indifferent, shrinking nor self-assertive, wary nor in any other way self-protective, they were just confidently, stunningly there. 
According to our biographer Arbus explained this to the writer Joseph Mitchell saying, most people go through their life dreading they'll have some traumatic, ex traumatic experience. Freaks were born with their trauma. They passed their life test. They're aristocrats. So too for those who are being judged by God, the worst has already happened to us. We are people who can sit there unassumingly, uh, the phrase I use for this sometimes is non-anxious presence, but we can sit there in life as if the worst has already happened to us because we have been baptized into God's know and the death of Jesus Christ. There is nothing terrible left to fear in their live worlds, nothing worse to protect themselves against, to disguise, or to deny. We are people who don't have to live in anxious denial around the way that reality is, that we can live there unassumedly, um, an unguarded presence, neither shrinking nor self-assertive, neither self-protective. Because we've been baptized and brought into that truth, we are able to live in such a way God's yes and God's no in election. The second is the spirit is what drives us into mission. Um, it's what drives us into seeing this world is not as it should be. And so we are driven into the second part of it. Now, one way that I like to talk about um, the spirit's work for us is a bit like eyeglasses. This comes from uh, J. Lewis Martin, I believe. But there's this way in which we see the world as a default like this. Um, we just see the world as it is, where death seems to win, destruction seems to be right. We have to fight for every inch, protect everything, be um, ultimately self-consumed because there's nobody else left, or we can fall into despair, which often happens as well. What the Spirit gives us is a second vision, a second way of seeing, in which that is not all there is. That is not all the way this world is. That is not the fullness of the story, but there is more. What's important I think to remember is that it's more the opposite is true. That's a helpful analogy to say that we um, we put on the eyeglasses, but what actually is happening is that our true vision is being redefined to God's vision. If they're just eyeglasses we put on, they look a little bit like putting our head in the sand. But if they are retraining our eyes to see as the way the world is that it's going to be in the fullness of time, that's the point. So they're corrective for the moment, but that final thing is the true thing. And so it is that Christians live on borrowed time. We use this phrase when um, somebody gets pardoned on death row that they are now on borrowed time. Um, they have more time than they would have otherwise. Um, or if you survive a car wreck or a fall or something like that, you are now living on borrowed time. So the Christian, because the Christian knows where history is going, being filled with the Spirit is one who lives on borrowed time. We know that there's more than we see. We know that there's a consummation coming. We know that there is... Um, greater truth out there than we can take in at the moment. Um, and so we are those who live on borrowed time. And one of the gifts of the Spirit is that the gift, uh, it reminds us who holds time. We do not hold time. We try to bind up time as much as we like. 
It was one day I was filling out my calendar for the week, and I was reading from an older theologian who talked about our attempts to, to sort of redeem time ourselves as building the own bars of our prison. And then I looked back at my calendar, and back at that quote, back at my calendar, back at the, It's like, they look like bars. <laughs> um, the, the, the attempt to capture time through productivity systems or whatever else, you're, you're just filling in the bars of your own prison. That's not to say don't do those things, keep your job, live a good life, this, that, and the other. Um, but we really are just trying to bind time in our own ways. And this pushes us into practices of distortion, I think, too. So now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, um, and the greatest of these is love. The practice in which we respond to this one is hope. We respond in hope to what God is doing for us. Hope, um, the president of my seminary used to always say, hope is what gives faith movement. Hope is what gives faith movement. That faith teaches us um, that God has related to us, that we have trusted in God's past goodness, but hope is what enables us to move forward into the present, that this is um, moving into um, a different realm of relating in creation, of going forward, of being in the world. Hope anticipates a future which we do not yet already have. This is Romans 8 again. Um, uh, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what would they already have? But if we hope for what do we not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Hope is not in what we already have. Actually, one of the distorting practices of hope is that we already have it. The biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann defines American hope as just more of the present. Like, we can't imagine anything better than our healthy presence, and so what is our hope? Just more of the present, and even just, like, slightly more. And what I think is even weirder, most often, if we're honest doing, and I'll say, when I, if I'm honest, when I'm trying to help someone in a relational way, my hope for them is that they'll become more like me, which is incredibly sad. Um, you know, so if I'm working at a homeless shelter, a win would be, hey, I would love for them to be able to have a car payment um, and to be stressed about getting to work on time. And to, like, but that, I think, is this sort of American definition of hope is that hope is often seen as more of what we already have. Whereas the biblical definition of hope is an interruption into the world as it is. It's something we can joyously anticipate because it is more than what is already there. That is very hard for us to accept, more than what is already there. Now, you can imagine yourself at someplace else in the world where more than what is already there sounds like amazing news. But for us, um, I think we think we can presume we can box in what it is we want and what it is we need. Um, but hope is this way in which we're sort of um, drawn into what we don't already have. So we practice joyous hopefulness in two ways. Um, uh, one in the now of borrowed time and one in the not yet of borrowed time. So one in the way in which the resurrection has happened, new creation has begun, new life is possible now. Eternal life doesn't begin in the future, but it is a quality of life that we can live in now. But there's the not yet, which is that this is not yet over, that the fullness is not here. 
Um, on the back of the bulletin, today's quote, which is this beautiful phrase from St. Augustine, uh, faith tells us that God is, is love. Love tells us that God is good. That God is. Love tells us that God is good. But hope tells us that God will work God's will. And hope has two lovely daughters, anger and courage. Anger so that what cannot be may not be. Encouraged so that must, must be will be. This is how hope operates to bring us into the world as we live it. First, anger at what isn't supposed to be, that we may call it, that it should not be. Encourage, in whatever small ways are possible, to actually seek to be in a world that says that those aren't the final word. C.S. Lewis has this phrase in Mere Christianity that hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were not just those, were, were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their marks on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health of one of your main and direct objects, you start to become a crank and imagining there is something wrong with you. You're only likely to get health provided you want other things. More, food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something more. Christians in this way with hunger and courage are called into this practices of in the now, seeking to enable the world to be as it will be in its fullness. One of my favorite examples of this is because in that day, there will be no lack of clean water. So today, Christians have set to build wells throughout areas that have clean water. Because in that day, there'll be no sex trafficking, Christians today, the International Justice Mission and many others, have sought to make sure that that is not happening in this world today. So we are drawn into these practices in the now. In the now of borrowed time, we become these people. I think in the now of borrowed time, this is going back to Stephen and Acts, we become those who offer forgiveness. In the now of modern time, forgiveness, even to wrongs done to us, can be the word offered by the Christian. Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen offers the word of forgiveness. But I think Christians are quite aware of what we can do in the now. It's what we can do in the not yet of borrowed time. Um, one, of my, one of my greatest, I think, um, challenges is trying to resist the totalitarian nature of time at the moment. So often it's seen, what can you do tomorrow to affect um, some sort of grander thing? And so this begins something that we trace out over and over again. 
Um, Stanley Hauerwas, as he lived this in his life, he said, first it became we needed to do something about civil rights. And he said that was a good cause, and we did what we could to support civil rights. Then it became everything needs to be done under the guise of what we might do about um, the war in Vietnam. He was at Yale at the time, and so they protested and did their thing. The next thing was that everything needs to be reconfigured in light of nuclear disarmament. We need to do everything in that way. And so, um, as you can see, what happens is we always have something else which we need to reconfigure all of our life in front of. What are you doing tomorrow to prevent uh, global warming? What are you doing tomorrow? This was... Um, it instantly shifted at one point in time from what are we doing politically about all those concerns with the election upcoming to like the totalitarian nature of like what are we all going to do about COVID. Um, the point being is that there's always something that wants to say all of your time needs to be reconfigured in light of this thing. Knowing that we live in the not yet of borrowed time is knowing that we have time to waste as Christians. Not all time needs to be utilized against some other thing or productive in some way. And so we have time to pray. We have time to celebrate. Not just celebrate because we won something, but to actively take in celebration because we know who holds time. We have time to weep and mourn. There is nothing more wasteful than weeping and mourning with someone you could be doing something to help them. And yet it is sitting with people in their suffering that Christians have time knowing that this is in the not yet. We have time to pray. Karl Barth says to collapse one hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. That's doing nothing to affect climate change if you sit there. This is not to say none of these things are important. I hope you don't hear me saying any of these impulses aren't important. Just that they want to take all our time from us and put them in service of that thing. We are freed from that. We don't have to live with time in that way. And so in, in the now... Um, what we read from the psalm is that we have this ability to taste and see that the Lord is good. And the not yet, we have this ability to say, we are waiting a future consummation that does not come from human hands. We have to hold those things in tension. We should be doing work of repair, but we should not only be doing that because it is not through our hands that the new world will come. And when we think it's that way, we're more likely to abuse and use and silence. If you've read any of the post-apocalyptic literature of the last 50 years, much of it is always saying every drive you had to solve every problem creates other ones that are almost worse. And so we are people who can do it in the small cracks of empire, of the world. A well is needed here. Freedom is needed here. Forgiveness is needed here. And so the sins, um, these are the things we end with. The sins on this one is to see everything as all now. Um, if you begin to see all of it as now, 
because of what God has done, it is all now. You begin to deny that there is real frustration in the world, that it affects other believers, and on time will come to affect you. Um, and you can either deny that that's a reality, or you can begin to see that 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 is part of who we are. The other, then, is to see it as all not yet. It's all coming someday, and we should do nothing. Both of those are sins of living in the present if we abandon the way in which hope is supposed to animate us. The final one is to just sit in a living death and to see that there is no hope in time. That's the singular up there. Um, And so that's the way in which this plays out for us. This is the Spirit's role for us. I'll end with uh, just one, one quote um, from Cornell West. It's one I think about often, but I think as we think about hope in the present, it's an important one to remember. He was asked if he was an optimist or a pessimist. You guys have heard me say this before, but West answered, I am neither an optimist or a pessimist. I am a prisoner of hope. We are not called to be optimists. We are not called to be pessimists. It's bad news for me. But we are called to be prisoners of the hope that through the Spirit, God is going to bring us to a fullness in time. Let us pray. God, you have blessed us with the gift of your Spirit that is bringing us to the fullness of your consummation with us. May, as we live into that, we see the blessings in which we have been called to through your Son and the gift of life and love. May, too, we also be those who see that we are drawn into um, a conflict between the old world and the new, and that we have already suffered the death of the old and the baptism unto death with your Son. We ask that you would draw us into practice of joyous hopefulness today both those in the now that we can see and what we can do for our neighbors and those who surround us in the world, and also with those in the not yet, that we can pray, we can celebrate, and that we can mourn with one another, awaiting your final consummation. Amen.